This uh, psalm that we just sang is a psalm about the, the heart and about how we need God to turn it towards Him. Uh, that's also where we end up when we consider the Tenth Commandment, as it's summarized on Lord's Day 44 today. As background to that, we'll read from the first letter of John, chapter 2, the verses 15 through 17. John chapter 2, the first letter of John chapter 2, the verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. We also turn to Lord's Day 44 of the Catechism, page 558. Here we read as follows, what does the Tenth Commandment require of us? That not even the slightest thought or desire contrary to any of God's commandments should ever arise in our heart. Rather, with all our heart, we should always hate all sin and delight in all righteousness. But can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? No. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. Nevertheless, with earnest purpose, they do begin to live not only according to some, but to all the commandments of God. If in this life no one can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God have them preached so strictly? First, so that throughout our life we may more and more become aware of our sinful nature and therefore seek more eagerly the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. Second, so that, while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image, until after this life we reach the goal of perfection. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, today we've come to the end of what the Ten Commandments, to what the Catechism says about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are profoundly offensive to the spirit of the world in which we live. And the Tenth Commandment is the most offensive of all. It says you shall not covet. In other words, you shall not desire anything that the Lord your God has put out of your reach. 
So this commandment covers not just our actions, but our very thoughts and motivations. It restricts our very thoughts and desires. It is intolerable to unbelievers that God would place any kind of restrictions on their actions at all, but most intolerable of all is the idea that God would have something to say about your very thoughts and desires, especially because of the world in which we live. We live in a world which believes, fully believes, and is fully convinced that all of your desires are biologically determined. And if that is true, then it would be unnatural to suppress your desires. Unbelievers, by definition, are people who have not been regenerated by God. So we should not expect them to understand the Ten Commandments or what God says about them. But even Christians don't always understand this command. They might think that it just means suppressing all of your desires and trying harder. Think of the eldest son in the parable of the prodigal son. He was angry when his father showed grace to the youngest son who had squandered his inheritance. And you remember those words of the oldest son. He said, These many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. So that comment shows that his obedience was never motivated by true love. Instead, he suppressed his true desires. He had other desires. He didn't want to obey his father, but he suppressed all of that so that he could be the dutiful son and obey his father. So his obedience was not motivated by love, and that means that he actually did not keep the law because love is the fulfillment of the law. So simply suppressing your desires is not enough to honor this commandment. To honor this commandment, you need to go much deeper than that. This commandment touches the very core of our identity as Christians. And there, we encounter the dark side of ourselves. But we also encounter God and His grace and the gospel that sheds a light on all of these things. So this afternoon, I may bring you that gospel as it comes to us in the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. And we'll see that this commandment reveals the remnants of sin's dominion in my heart. This commandment also reveals the reality of God's dominion in my heart. One of the greatest mysteries of the Christian life is that you can be a Christian for a long time and still have desires that you know are wrong. For example, you can be a Christian and still feel hatred against your fellow believer if that person has belittled you in public. You might even desire revenge against that person. Or it could be that you're sitting here this afternoon and you're actually not very happy in your marriage. You have desired or maybe even now desire someone other than your spouse. Or maybe your desires are shaped by that which the Word of God forbids, whether you are married or not. We could probably all find examples in our lives of things that we know are wrong, desires that we know are wrong. And even if at this point you don't struggle with any overt sinful desire, does that really mean that you are more holy than the person sitting in the pew beside you? Or is it just a question of circumstances? How often have we not 
avoided giving in to a sinful desire simply because we didn't have the opportunity to make it real. The circumstances prevented us from doing so. It wasn't our willpower. So are we really that much better than the next person? Are we really that much more righteous? Do we really have that much willpower? Or was it just that we didn't have the same opportunities for sin and misery that they had? Maybe you've never looked at pornography in your life. You pity the people who struggle with that particular sin. But maybe the reason for that was because you grew up in an age when there were no smartphones, or or maybe smartphones were only just coming in. Or maybe you grew up with smartphones, but you have filters on all of those devices. So how do you know that you would not seize the opportunity in a moment of weakness if you could get away with it? We know that those desires do not please the Lord, and yet they are there. One of the great mysteries, the puzzling things about the Christian life. We know better, but we sin again and again and again. And sometimes we sin in new, unusual ways that we hadn't even thought of before. Against that, the Tenth Commandment reveals our hearts. It says, not even the slightest thought or desire contrary to any of God's commandments should ever arise in our heart. There's the bar. Absolute perfection, not even the slightest thought or desire. And it's not that we are called to subdue the evil desires that are there. The Tenth Commandment is not saying you should suppress your desires. Instead, it is saying to you that that you should have never had those desires in the first place. So we are wrong not just in what we do. We are wrong not just in what we think. But we are wrong in what we are in the very core of our being. You see, our desires, says Scripture, come out of the heart. That shows how deep our problem runs. Remember the words of our Lord in Mark 7, verses 20 through 23. He said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within And they defile a person. Now maybe you've seen these things in your own heart before. Maybe there was a time when the Lord gave you a searing moment of clarity where you saw yourself from a scriptural perspective and you turned away in disgust. Maybe you were shocked. Maybe you were shocked at the the thoughts that emerged in your mind and you thought, where did that come from? Am I even a Christian? Have I been regenerated or have I not? Maybe in a moment of darkness you even question your own salvation. You know, it's not a bad thing to wrestle with your faith. Better that than that you go through life blindly without ever questioning anything. But when you have questions, where do you go for answers? That's the important part. Where do you go for your answers? You should never turn within should always turn into, you should always turn to, to Scripture and to the confessions which summarize Scripture. Consider, for example, the Canons of Dort, chapter 5, article 1. We've looked at that before, but let's look at it again together for a moment. Canons of Dort, chapter 5, 
Article 1. Page 565. Sorry, that's the first one. Page 582. Article 1. First column, midway down, the heading says, The regenerate, not free from indwelling sin. What does it say? It says, Those whom God, according to his purpose, calls into the fellowship of his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and regenerates by his Holy Spirit, he certainly sets free from the dominion and slavery of sin, but not entirely in this life from the flesh and body of sin. That is a very helpful statement and a very helpful pastoral document. The, the canons of Dort are absolute gold, if, if you know how to mine it. So, it says a number of things in this, in this article. First, it implies that no one has faith unless God calls him. See, those whom God, according to his purpose, calls. So, unless God calls you, you will not have faith. Second, it says, when you are called, you are called into the fellowship of his Son. So it's through the blood of Jesus Christ that we are cleansed from our sins. That's also, also represented in the water of baptism, which we, we just saw. And third, it says that he regenerates us by his Holy Spirit. That means he gives you new life, and, and then he transforms you from the inside out. So you get regeneration, and then sanctification flows out of that, like the ripples on a pond after you throw in a stone. And the fourth thing that he says is that you are certainly, not possibly, not maybe, certainly set free from the dominion and slavery of sin. So these four things are not four separate stages. If you are a child of God, if you are considering these questions this afternoon, if you are wrestling with your faith, all of these things are true of you now already. It's with all of those things in mind that you should look at that last line. Not entirely in this life from the flesh and the body of sin. You are certainly set free from the dominion and slavery of sin. Not entirely in this life from the flesh and the body of sin. So what does that word dominion imply? Dominion implies that you have a master. In this case, your master would be sin and the devil who would rule over your life, but you have been set free from that. As a Christian, you are set free from that. You are no longer under his dominion. You are under new management. That is the reality. But when there's a new manager, it takes time to learn new habits. You still have the flesh and body of sin. It's a very tangible way of putting it, isn't it? You still have the flesh and body of sin. This is not, not an abstract kind of a thing. This is real. This is there. The flesh, the flesh and the body of sin the shapes and the patterns of sin in your life. You are fully regenerated, but you are not yet fully sanctified. So it is possible to be a true believer. It is possible to be saved in that sense, but to still struggle with misplaced desires in your life, sometimes very powerful desires, sometimes desires that seem overwhelming. The Catechism says in this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience, even the holiest have only a small beginning. 
says in Lord's Day 44 of this obedience. Why is that? Why is there only a small beginning according to the catechism? Because of what true obedience actually looks like. Because you know, there was only one man on this earth ever in the whole history of the human race who was truly obedient. There was only one man on this earth who was completely perfect. If you want to see what complete obedience looks like, that's what you need to look at. You need to look at Jesus Christ. That's where the bar is set. And when you see him in the scriptures, then you begin to understand why the catechism can say that even the best person that we've ever met here on earth only has a small beginning of obedience. It's because the bar is so high. But our shortcomings, dear brothers and sisters, are not meant to make us turn away in despair. They're meant to focus our eyes on Christ. Think about what this means. If in this life even the holiest have only a small beginning of obedience, it means that even the holiest never stop needing Christ. Even the holiest never stop needing sanctification. Even the holiest never stop needing forgiveness. And that's grace. It is grace to realize that. It is grace to become aware of your sinful nature. It is grace to come to terms with your need for Christ. It is grace to desire Him, to hunger after Him, to cherish Him more than anything else in this life. That's grace. Jesus Christ was not only your Savior merely at some distant point in the past. He is your Savior today. He is willing to be your Savior today. He is your Savior today because you need Him today. You need Him every day of your life. And it is precisely because of that need that you should not underestimate the power of sin. You've got to take it seriously. You're not out of the woods. You still have the habits of sin. You are still wearing the flesh and the body of sin. With all our heart, we should always hate all sin and delight in all righteousness, says the, the catechism. It is so black and white. With all our heart, no exceptions, we should always hate, hate, hate all sin. And we should delight in all righteousness. Can you see that? Is that true of you? Do we, do we really hate all sin? All of it? Even a hint of it? In Ephesians 5 verse 3, the Apostle Paul writes, Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. Or as the 1984 NIV put it, there must not even be a hint. Not even a hint. Not even a hint. Is that true? Is it true of us? Us, free, reformed people sitting here this afternoon, dearly beloved by our Lord. Is it true that there is not even a hint of this in our lives, in our desires? Or is there a repressed love of the world underlying our actions. Maybe you don't always see it. Maybe we still try, maybe we try to have what the world has, but maybe just a little less offensive. Maybe we still have the same kinds of parties, just a little bit toned down. Maybe we still engage in the same kind of behavior, just a little bit less extreme. Maybe we still laugh at the same kind of entertainment, just a little less often. 
Maybe we haven't really pursued righteousness. Maybe we've never pursued righteousness. Maybe it has always only been the middle road. Maybe we've had our our feet on both sides of the fence, one foot on each side. But dear brothers and sisters, to have a little less of the world than the world itself has does not make you a Christian. In our reading, the Apostle John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What does he mean with the world? Well, the world can mean the created order. In that sense, the world is a good thing. This world is the place where God reigns. The world and all that is in it, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who dwell therein, the place of God's reign, the world that we love, the world around us, beautiful. That's not what he means here, though. The word world can also be used to describe all that is sinful and opposed to God, and and Jesus often used it in that way. He said, it hates me. The world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil, John 7, 7. This is the world that hated him. This is the world that rejected him. This is the world that still hates him and still rejects him today. Should we love that world? Is it right for us to love that world? In our reading, the Apostle John goes on to write, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father. It is from the world. What are the desires of the flesh? Simply all that is in us that is opposed to God. And is there any part of us that is really free from sin? Our reading also refers to the pride of life. Refers to the pride of life in verse 16. In context, this can refer to a desire for personal gain in all of its forms. The idea behind this is is a self-centeredness, a wanting advantages for yourself in life. In that sense, it's a typical worldly attitude. Maybe not all people are that way all of the time, but, but our text does say that this is a characteristic of the world. If you're here today... Or if you're listening into our service this afternoon, this applies to you. Even if there are no outstanding struggles in your life, everything that the Tenth Commandment says, it says to you, it says to me, it says to us. We should remember there are no such thing, things as neutral desires in life. Even the desire for food or drink, if it's not done, if it's not fulfilled in thanksgiving, is still a desire independent from God. It is in that sense turned away from him in verse 17 john goes on to say and the world is passing away along with all of its desires but whoever does the will of god abides forever why does the world with all of its desires why why will that pass away how does that pass away because it lies under judgment if you think about that all that people now desire, is subject to decay. All those who desire are subject to decay. It is all subject to the curse and to the fall. One day it will all be judged with finality. If you desire the world, then that which you desire most will be destroyed forever. 
and it will be destroyed soon. The Apostle Peter wrote, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. How foolish to cover things that will be destroyed. How foolish to invest yourself completely in that which will pass away. How foolish to covet that which is not eternal. And yet, that is what the Tenth Commandment reveals in us. We've seen that this commandment reveals the remnants of sin's dominion in my heart, but it also does more than that. It also reveals the reality of God's dominion, the reality of God's dominion in my heart. I'm going to look at that next. You know, we've, we've taken the time to, to talk about sin. Sin is real. But so is redemption. So is conversion. So is sanctification. So is everything that the Bible says happens in your life when you believe. The Catechism goes on to say, with earnest purpose, they do begin to live not only according to some, but to all the commandments of God. Where does that earnest purpose come from? It doesn't come from the world. The world is all that is sinful. The world is all that is opposed to God, remember? The world becomes also then a stage in which we live out our faith. When the Lord transforms our hearts and minds, then that world with its sinfulness becomes a stage where we live out our faith in the day-to-day choices that we make, where we live out our obedience to God. But it takes time to learn that. With earnest purpose, they do begin to live not only according to some, but to all the commandments of God. Notice the word begin. They do begin to live. There is a beginning. But it takes time. It's not complete right away. Regeneration is a one-time thing. When God first, first gives us that gift of faith, when he first regenerates us and then gives us the gift of faith, that is a one-time thing. Those who are truly regenerated will never, ever, ever lose that. But sanctification is not one time. You need to continue living out of God's grace. You should expect struggle. You should expect difficulty. In fact, it means you're growing up in the faith. You see, sanctification is not the same thing as suppression. The catechism, again, is not telling us to suppress our desires. If you think that the Christian life is about suppressing all desires and living in a gray twilight zone where nothing ever happens, you have never understood what the faith is really about. You've never understood what this commandment is about. We are called to do something much greater. We are called to submit our desires to God. We are to submit our desires to God, and that is much harder than suppressing them. Because suppression can be accomplished by pure willpower, can't it? People can do incredible things with raw willpower. But regeneration, regeneration is a work of God. Renewal of your attitude is a work of God. Submission of your desires is a work of God. Our desires are so much a part of the fabric of our being. To give up your desires means to, can, can feel sometimes like giving up your very identity. There can be this, this great 
external struggle with a world that opposes you and at the same time a great internal struggle. And in all of this you become more and more aware of your inherent sinfulness and you think, where do I go? But when you become more and more aware of your sin, this is a good thing. This is a good thing. It is, it is not bad to struggle. And you should not be doubting your salvation. This is evidence of God's work in your life. Here we need to trust the power of his regeneration. We need to t- trust the, the sincerity of his promises. We need to trust his renewing work in our lives. He brought us into the world He equips us to overcome the world. One day he will call us out of the world. And we need to trust. We need to trust that he will complete what he has begun. Our relationship with God is not a restriction on life in the fullest sense of the word. It is the only source of life. And the commandment not to covet reminds us of that. It reminds us of the remnants of sin's dominion in our hearts, yes, but it also reminds us of the much greater reality of God's dominion in our hearts. Therefore, we need to take this commandment seriously. We need to live accordingly. We need to remember these words. With earnest purpose, they do begin to live, not only according to some, but according to all the commandments of God. How seriously do you take that? Again, is there even a hint of iniquity? The slightest thought or desire... Our question should never be, how close can I get to the line? That's, that's how the Pharisees reason. The question should never be, how close can I get to the line, but is this increasing my desire for God? Not the God of my imagination. Not the God who is actually not that different from me. But the God of the Bible. The God of Psalm 29. The God who revealed himself in Christ the God who gave his son for me, the son who died for me, the spirit who lives in me, that God. I should not be satisfied with a small beginning alone. If you have the beginning, and for the rest, never give it a second thought, you will not be saved. You need to take the strive seriously. Strive. Strive. The late Reverend Tunderman, who, who died in a German concentration camp. He once said, those who do not strive for perfection will never attain it. And the the focus here is on strive. Those who do not strive for perfection will never attain it. He's not saying that you are saved by your works. The point is that if all that you do is to acknowledge that you've sinned against all of God's commandments, if if all that you do is, is acknowledge that you have sinned against God's commandments and have never kept any of them. And if you leave it at that, you sound pious, but you are not actually a true Christian. A true Christian desires to have his whole life under the dominion of God. A true Christian desires to bring every thought captive to Christ. A true Christian desires to have the dominion of the Holy Spirit extend over every part of his life. It's good for us as parents, those of us who are parents, we should remember this as well. Are we supporting our children in the fight to bring every part of their lives under the dominion of Christ, under the reign of His Spirit? 
Are we supporting them to live out of the grace of adoption that they have in the Father? For example, it is obvious that smartphones can be useful tools. It's also obvious that they can do a lot of harm. They can be a gateway to all sorts of unthinkable iniquity. But even if they are used for better ends, we can all, all face the facts, right? Those of us who own a smartphone have wasted a lot of time on it. They breed bad habits, especially in manners and in communication. So a wise parent will not give a smartphone to a child quickly. This is a, a decision which should be made only with a lot of thought, probably with prayer. It's not necessary for a young child to have a smartphone. But even your teenagers, do they really need one right away? The one thing you should never, ever, ever do as a child is give, give your children unfiltered access to the internet. This is non-negotiable. If you have a child under your roof, and if he or she is disappearing for long stretches of time with unfiltered access to the internet, you have made a grave mistake. This is serious. Your child could be learning to desire all kinds of things that are unhealthy, maybe even spiritually deadly. Don't be surprised if you get behavioral issues later on. You cannot on the one hand pray for the reality of God's dominion in their lives and then on the other hand give them unfiltered internet access. It doesn't work that way. That's, not, that's simply not being realistic. Instead, you teach them to submit their desires to God. And that begins with our own faith life. The best thing you can give to your children is your own personal holiness. All of our desires are to be submitted to God. He has dominion over all of them. And as we do that, as we submit our desires, as we confess, as we repent, they become less and less dominant in our lives. They may not disappear completely, for we still struggle with the flesh and the body of sin. This side of the grave we always will, but they will no longer dominate us. Instead, our desires change. And you learn not just to love God. You learn to love the things that God loves. You learn to love His people. You learn to love His church. You learn to love His law. The more you learn to love what God loves, the more you learn to love God Himself. It feeds on itself. God's goal for our life is perfection. We should never forget that. But then remember that God's promise for your life is perfection as well. And never forget that either. Jesus was the ultimate man who did God's will. And because he did God's will, you will live forever. One day you will be perfected. One day you will turn away from all that opposes God completely. One day you will be all that God intended for you to be. You will be satisfied in him, in him alone, in the work of his hands, in all that testifies to his presence. You will be eternally content and you will never desire to sin again. Amen.